Welcome to the Resurrection Church Podcast. Resurrection Church exists for the glory of God and the joy of His people. If you're looking for a church in the upstate of South Carolina, please join us at 9 and 11 a.m. on Sunday mornings at 900 North Main Street in Greer, South Carolina. We pray you'll be blessed by this message. My name's Stan, one of the elders here, in case you missed that. Um, we're going to be reading our text for this morning as we go into worship in the Word, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed, and we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of his all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for this generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Thank you, Stan. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. That's better. That's better. That's better. Uh, what a joy to welcome all these new members, huh? Can we give the Lord praise for that one more time? That's just awesome. And we had two babies born this week in the church. Uh, Jessica and Andy Long had their little fella, Asher, uh, and he's doing well. And John and Tiffany McClure had a little baby boy named Alden. So let's give those moms, they might be watching online, so let's give those moms and dads a hand. Good job. So it's appropriate that today we light the candle of joy. You notice that it's uh, different in color. It's, it's pinkish as opposed to the other candles are purple, and the one in the middle, the Christ candle, is white. The reason we light the pink candle on the week of joy is that it symbolizes the darkness being pushed back, right? What is the joy of Advent? You might think you know the answer to that question, and you probably do. But let's consider. 
Some of the greatest joys that we can experience in this life are flowing from, in many cases, rooted in some of the deepest sorrows. Is that fair? Think about uh, moms and dads. When a, when a couple welcomes their first child into the world, into their life, they have great joy. But think about the couple that before their first child was born, they had to go through the deep sorrow and grief of one or more miscarriages. The joys, it's not like one mom and dad appreciates their kid more than the other, but there is seemingly a, a heightening of the joy when that joy flows out of, or it's even rooted in, something that preceded it that was deeply sorrowful. I, I was sick earlier this week, and I spent an entire day in the bed. And when you do that, you get bored, right? So uh, I rented a movie called Zero Dark Thirty. How many of you have seen that movie about the killing of, of Osama bin Laden? So I watched this movie, and if you've ever seen that, it's an incredibly dark movie. For, the, for the almost the entirety of the movie, because in the decade or so after 9-11, there, there's just so much toil and labor and death and sacrifice and tragedy that's involved in our country and, and specifically these special forces and CIA agents that went after getting Osama bin Laden. It's just dark, 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 sad, tragic, bombs, more people dying until finally, that SEAL team goes into that home, that compound in Pakistan, and there's one of those agents chirps over the radio, Geronimo, for God and country. And suddenly, it's like the light breaks into that movie, and there's just joy. We got him, right? This man who is responsible for one of the worst tragedies Worst terrorist acts that our country's ever experienced. Thousands die. Incredible tragedy. Lots of sorrow. Lots of grief. And yet, incredible joy when justice was finally served. A joy that took 10 years to realize after 9-11. But yet that was a joy that was tasted three days after 9-11 happened. George W. Bush, then president, he flies to ground zero, and he's standing there in this incredible pile of rubble with people still trapped under it. Rescue workers are there frantically trying to find them. And he gets on a megaphone, and he starts to try to make a speech, but people in the crowd keep saying, we can't hear you, we can't hear you. And finally, you might remember this, into that megaphone, he says this. He says, well, I hear you, the world hears you, and the people who knock these buildings down, they're going to hear from all of us soon. And what happens Joy erupts, an anticipatory kind of joy because people knew, they felt, justice hasn't been served, but it's coming. That's kind of like where we are in Isaiah. It's been a really dark time for Israel. Like this is what we've seen in Israel's history at this point is that it's darkness looming over God's people because of their sin and rebellion and God's judgment. And that's the way it's gone for 39 chapters. 39 chapters. Isaiah gets his call into ministry in chapter 6. And you might remember reading that. Isaiah 
the, the veil is sort of peeled back and he sees God high and lifted up on the throne. And then the question comes from Yahweh, who's going to go for us? And Isaiah raises his hand like a, a first grader in class. Ooh, 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 pick me. I'll go. God says, all right, Isaiah, I'm going to send you. And here's how it's going to go. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. How bleak is that? Go, Isaiah, and they're not going to listen. Isaiah might have been thinking to himself, what did I volunteer for? Sure enough, you turn the page. Chapter 7. We looked at that the first week of Advent. Who's the first person Isaiah sent to? Ahaz. And does he listen? No. He's dull of hearing. He doesn't listen to a word Isaiah says, and that's pretty much the way it goes for 39 chapters. It's dark. Like those 10 years after 9-11, it's just dark. But then something changes in chapter 40. It's almost like the scene shifts from judgment to comfort. And You might recognize these words. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says God, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended. That sounds great, right? That her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The punishment's over. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway. For our people. It's a startling transition. You're tracking through the book of Isaiah, suddenly, instead of judgment, it's comfort them. Comfort them. Their guilt, their iniquity is being pardoned. The punishment's over. The war is over. And then I think Isaiah sees a vision in verse 3. He sees a vision of a man standing in the wilderness, crying out to the top of his lungs. Make ready the way for Yahweh. Make straight his path. We know who that is, don't we? Isaiah doesn't, though. Just sees a man crying out. So if you're Isaiah and you're Judah, you might be thinking at first, this is glorious. Pardon, no more punishment. The war's over. This is glorious. But here's what you know. There's a pattern. And we identify with this pattern least to a certain degree. And the pattern for Israel is this. We sin, God judges, and things don't go well. So great Isaiah, comfort, pardon, the war's over, no more punishment. That sounds good for today, but what about tomorrow? Because if you're Israel, if you're Judah, you know this about yourself already. Your biggest problem, though you are facing threats from foreign enemies, invasion, potentially exile, here's what you know. Your biggest problem is your sin and the ongoingness of it. That's everybody's biggest problem. So if you're Isaiah, if you're Judah, you're asking the question at this point, how's this going to happen? How's this going to 
How's this pardon and cessation of war and punishment going to take place? Because here's what we know. God gave us the law, and we can't keep it. Isaiah 42, verse 8 and 9. I am the Lord, Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. In other words, God's going to do something that only he's going to get the glory for. Might as well get on with that's the way God does things. He uses the weak in order to put his strength on display. Verse 9. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare before. Everybody say before. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. There it is. Something new's coming. Comfort my people. The war's over. Their guilt is pardoned. There's a cessation of war, and the punishment's over. And something new is coming. Not new in the sense that it's a new plan or it's a new idea. We know that, right? We've talked about that. God has only and always been working one big plan. When, I, when God speaks and says, I'm going to do something new, it doesn't mean that it's a new idea. It means it just hasn't been realized yet. So there's a new thing coming, and I think there's an anticipation of that new thing because of God's promises, because of what they've seen him do in the past, but there's something else going on too. I want you to go with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're trying to get a sense of what... What are Isaiah and, and the people of Judah, what are they processing? What are they thinking as they consider that God is now beginning to offer comfort and declaring that he's going to do a new thing? What are they anticipating? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning this salvation, what salvation? I would encourage you to go read 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. It's one of the most beautiful descriptions of the gospel that you'll find in all of Scripture. So he's picking up on what he's just said in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. Everybody say, that's me. In the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. There's a lot there, but just think about this. Isaiah, prophets like Isaiah, were prophesying about things that they didn't know when or who. But they did know that they weren't just serving themselves, but they were serving some future generation who would realize the things that God was showing them. The Spirit of Christ in them was revealing this. You know, Israel, you know, Christ is not Jesus' last name. You understand that, right? It's his title, his function. It means anointed one, Messiah. Israel has some experience with anointed ones, don't they? They've been led by conquerors like Moses, Joshua, 
Gideon, that Stan mentioned last week. They've been led by great kings like David and Solomon, rebuilders like Nehemiah. They've got, they've got a sense of what it means for God to have an anointed one and do something new, do something powerful, something amazing. But I think there was something in Isaiah's soul as he wrote these prophecies that was testifying that there's, there's a preeminent anointed one that's coming. An anointed one that's unlike any of the other chosen servants of God throughout Old Testament history. I think Isaiah felt something brewing in him. And according to 1 Peter chapter 1, it was the spirit of Christ in him, even though he didn't know who Jesus was. This is 800 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Isaiah doesn't know about Bethlehem and the star and the wise men and the angels and the cross and the empty tomb. He doesn't know about all of that, but he's writing this and there's something in him that's testifying someone's coming. That's why Advent is such an incredible season to celebrate because the word Advent means arrival, came. Preeminent, anointed one is coming. What's he going to be like? We know the answer, don't we? Two plus two equals what? Four. We know the answer is Jesus. But let's pretend like we don't. Let's go there with Isaiah, asking the question, who is this going to be? When is this going to happen? And How could this come to be? that God is going to offer comfort to his people, pardon, the end of war, and no more punishment. How is that going to happen? Chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servants shall act wisely. The servant language is not new in Isaiah by this point. Israel is referred to as the servant of God in Isaiah 41. She's a corporate servant, and we know she's failed. Isaiah is referred to as a servant of God in chapter 49, but this is referring to a servant that cannot be Isaiah or Israel, and we'll see why. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told to them they see, and that which, we, which they see, uh, which they have not heard, they understand. There's a servant coming. And the servant is going to be high, lifted up, exalted, unlike any other. But somehow this servant is going to suffer in such a way that his appearance is going to be marred beyond recognition. Just imagine that you don't know the answer to 2 plus 2 equals 4. You're reading this and you're going, what? A high and lifted up servant who's going to suffer in such a way that people aren't even going to be able to recognize him? That sounds terrible. But yet... What he accomplishes is going to be so powerful that kings are going to shut their mouth. They're going to be silenced. They're going to see and they're going to understand. He's going to sprinkle nations. That's a picture of cleansing. This is powerful. And if you're reading this, 
you're Isaiah, if you're Judah and you're hearing this, you're going, all right, who? When? Chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here's how I read that. Hello? Hello, McFly? Anybody home? Are you paying attention? That's, that's what verse 1 is. Servant's coming. High and lifted up. He's going to suffer. But his suffering is somehow going to accomplish something so powerful it'll shut the mouths of kings. Are you paying attention? Are you on the edge of your seat? You ought to be. I think Isaiah is. Verse 2. What's this servant going to be like? For he grew up before him like a a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Boy, what a great passage for the week of joy. This is horrible. The servant of God is sent to save rebel subjects. And the very subjects that he's sent to save reject him. He's despised. He's, he's despised and rejected. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. Why is he despised and rejected? I think his very arrival is an indictment against the rebels. The fact that he shows up poor and humble and unassuming, the fact that he he shows up with no prestige, he's not going after money, he's not going after the recognition of men, he's he's not consumed by lust or by greed. The fact that he shows up that way, it's an indictment against all those things in us. That we value natural beauty so much and yet he shows up and his form and appearance was apparently not that much to look at. Listen, Jesus was not blonde hair with blue eyes and big muscles. Apparently he wasn't that impressive and I think this man of sorrows makes our cheap, fleeting pursuits of happiness feel like a colossal waste of time. So he's despised and he's rejected. Now it feels like the comfort in chapter 40 was false hope. Because the servant who's coming to deliver this is rejected by the very ones he came to save. What happens? Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity or the guilt of us all. It's almost like the rejection of the servant doesn't catch him off guard. He's not surprised by it. He doesn't reject those who reject him. Instead, what does he do? He bears their sorrows. He carries their griefs. He's wounded for their offenses. 
and he's crushed under the weight of their guilt. Apparently, God isn't going to sweep the greatest human problem, sin, under the rug. What he's apparently going to do is he's going to lay that guilt for the offenses that we've committed, he's going to lay that guilt on him. He's going to bear the grief that we have produced. He's going to bear the guilt that we have earned. He's going to take on the punishment for the sins that we've committed. In other words, God's servant, we're pretending like we don't know who this is. God's servant is going to become a substitutionary substitutionary ransom for God's rebel subjects. And guess how the rebel subjects are going to look at that? They're going to look at that and determine that he's been smitten and stricken by God. The very ones he came to save. We'll, we'll despise him all the more is really what that means. He's not much to look at. He's despised and rejected. And then when God lays our guilt on him, we'll look at that and go, he must have been worthless. Because all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Guess what? We are guilty. We're guilty. It's our guilt. We've earned it. But he's taking it on? This sounds like an epic tragedy, does it not? Verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he opened not his mouth. I don't know about you, but if I'm called to stand in the gap for someone who rejects me, I'm going to protest. Y'all are just holier than me. I, you, you wouldn't do that. I would protest and say, wait a minute. I'm doing this for you. You're going to despise and reject me? No. But he doesn't open his mouth. He's humble. What's this servant like? He's humble. The humility of the servant is seen in the fact that he doesn't open his mouth in protest. He opened not his mouth like a man that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And for this generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? Here's what it means, ultimately, that he's going to take the guilt of the rebel subjects. He's going to accept a sentence of death. The servant is not only not going to protest, he's going to willingly accept a sentence of death for the sake of those who deserve that sentence. Verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. The servant is humble. He accepts the sentence of death and he's innocent. He had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. His grave was with the rich man. 
That's a picture of his innocence. He dies among the wicked. He dies like the wicked, but he's innocent. And instead of being thrown into a common grave with common criminals, he's buried in the tomb of a rich man. He died among the wicked, but he wasn't wicked. That's what that pictures. He's innocent. The servant is rejected. The servant is a substitute. The servant is humble. The servant accepts a sentence of death. And the servant is innocent. I'm still asking the question, where's the joy? Where's it going to break in? When's it coming? How in the world is this going to result in comfort, pardon, and the cessation of punishment for God's rebellious people? Verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. His death... The death of the servant is not random, and it's not wasted. And how do we know that? Because it's the will of Yahweh to crush him. Therefore, because it's God's will, this death will not be in vain. It, the will of the Lord is going to prosper in his hand. And if you don't know the answer to 2 plus 2 equals 4, you're asking the question, how is that possible? How can the will of God prosper in his hand if he's dead? That doesn't work. I like, Isaiah, the prospect of someone taking my guilt, my punishment. I'm, I'm, I'm all about that. But if he's dead, how's this going to produce anything? How's this going to produce anything that's lasting? Did you notice it? There's a hint of resurrection here. He shall prolong his days. The servant dies, but he's not going to stay dead. And here comes the comfort. Here comes the joy. His sacrificial offering of himself is going to result in many being accounted righteous. This is 800 years before Jesus was born. Many who are guilty are going to be accounted righteous. That's incredible. And it's more than an acquittal. You remember John chapter 3 when Jesus has this conversation with Nicodemus? And Nicodemus comes and says to Jesus, we know you're a teacher sent from God because nobody could be doing the things that you're doing. And Jesus just cuts him off and says, Nicodemus, unless you're what? Born again. Let's say that together. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus looks at Jesus like a cow at a new gate. Born again? What is that? can't enter my mother's womb a second time. Jesus, what are you talking about? And you know what has always confused me? Is that Jesus doesn't look back at him and go, 
Nicodemus, I know that's a new idea and probably foreign to you. Let me explain it to you. No, here's what he says. You are a teacher of Israel and you don't know what I mean by born again? No. It's almost like Jesus thought Nicodemus should have a frame of reference for this. Where? How? Why? I think there's a clue in verse 10. Can you see it? You see the word that might point us towards something like a new birth? He shall see his offspring. Let's say it together. His offspring. I don't know how that would have hit them. But there's a hint there that this is not just an acquittal of guilt. This is something deeper, richer, gooder. It's a new, some kind of new birth. It's going to take place. Look at verse 12. Therefore, I will divide with him a, por- a, a, por- a divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The dividing of portion and spoil is the doling out of benefits of conquest. Like it's the picture of a king coming back from a great victory and sharing the spoils, the goods of the conquest with his subjects. That's the picture. Well, what, what might that mean? Look at it, what it says. He was numbered with the transgressors. What tense is that? Past tense. He was numbered with the transgressors. When did that happen? It happened on the cross. He was declared guilty though he was innocent. He was numbered with the transgressors. But then he bore the sin of many and makes intercession. What tense is that? Present and ongoing. He makes intercession for the transgressors. Here's the joy. What began in the deepest of all sorrows is making way for this incredible joy that this servant is going to stand in the place of guilty rebel subjects, take their punishment, take their guilt, take their grief, take their sorrow on himself and make them righteous. They're going to be counted as righteous, not because of what they've done, but because of what he's done. He's going to be numbered with those transgressors. He's going to make those transgressors righteous. And then he's going to intercede in an ongoing way for those same transgressors. And I sat down with my kids yesterday and we went over this text and I asked them, what do you think it means that Jesus would be interceding for transgressors? And one of them said, that word sounds like pleading. I said, that's great. Like a lawyer would plead a case. And I said, here's the deal. Not a perfect analogy, but if Jesus is the lawyer pleading the case before the father, the judge, what's his case? I said, is his case that, oh, look, they're really good people. You know, they've done more good than bad. Is that his case? They were really not as bad as it might seem at first. Trust me, I've been down there with them. They're good to go. Let's just, is that his case? I looked at my kids and I said, his case 
is not anything that you've done or I've done. His case is totally what he's done. I did this for them. That's the joy. And if we're with Isaiah at this point, we're asking the question, who? Who is this? When? And see, I look across this audience, and, I, and I'm not expecting you to do cartwheels and backflips right now. But this isn't strange to us anymore. And that is sad to me. Is that we could light the candle of joy and go, huh, that's nice. What a pretty candle. We need this to be strange again. We know this. Our biggest problem is not financial. It's not physical. It's not even emotional. And it's not relational in a human sense. Our biggest problem is our sin and our guilt. And we know it. We know it. And it's only from realizing that deep sorrow, feeling that weight that I think Judah and Israel are feeling at this time where they're facing threats from all over and they know, they know that it's God judging them because of their idolatry. They've worshiped anything and everything but him. God's been faithful to them and they've been anything but faithful. And they know it, and they don't know what to do about it because it just has an ongoingness to it. But God says, comfort my people because a servant's coming. And he's going to bear all that sorrow, all that grief, all that guilt, and all that punishment on himself. And he's going to make them righteous and plead their case, not on the basis of what they've done, but what he's done for them. So we got to ask the question, who? Who is this going to be? In Acts chapter 8, we read about a man named Philip, who was not one of the apostles, not one of the 12. He's just a guy that got called to serve, and when persecution hit the church, he was scattered into, out of Jerusalem into Samaria, and God did amazing things through him miracles, lots and lots and lots of salvations in Samaria. And then God shows up to Philip, an angel comes to Philip and says, I want you to go to this particular street in a deserted place. So Philip goes, leaves a thriving ministry in Samaria, and he goes to this particular road. And there on that road, uh, an Ethiopian eunuch is passing by. I'm not going to explain what all that means, but he's a foreign, he's not a Jew. He's passing by in his chariot, and, and Philip hears him reading Scripture. Can you guess what that eunuch was reading? Isaiah 53. Philip comes over to him and says, hey, do you know what you're reading? And the eunuch says, well, how could I unless someone guides me? He's not a Jew. He doesn't have any frame of reference or basis for understanding Jewish Scripture. So he said, he, but I think this eunuch does have a sense. He's guilty 
and there's something going on here. There's some kind of good news here that I need to understand. And so it prompts a question to Isaiah, Acts chapter 8, verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? So there's the question. Who's he talking about? Who's this servant? Philip answers. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. Beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Two plus two equals four. Jesus is the servant. And I know you knew that before we started. But the joy of Advent is a joy. It is a great joy. It is an incredible joy. It's a joy that's so amazing and full of glory. It's almost unspeakable. But you know, at Christmas time, we throw the word joy around with a lot of vagueness, a lot of sentimentality. We it's just joy. You can turn on a Christmas program and they'll go from singing joy to the world, the Lord has come, to um, here comes Santa Claus. We, we, don't, we, we put those joys on the same shelf and they're not, are they? It's because the joy of Advent is rooted in a sorrow that's deep. It's, it's rooted in a condition of humanity that's bleak. There's no hope. It's only darkness. There's no light because we're guilty. And the only result of being guilty is being punished, the wrath of God being poured out for sin. But our joy, you know, the Apostle Paul in Romans 3, he raises this question. How is it possible that God could be both just and the justifier? Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? How could God be both just and the justifier? How could he justify guilty people and make them righteous and still be just himself? Do you understand the question? Here's the answer. His servant, Jesus, the son of God, taking the guilt on himself, bearing griefs, carrying sorrows, taking the punishment taking the iniquity on himself, Yahweh crushing him with the wrath that we deserved and him dying, going all the way into death. But he doesn't stay dead. He's the firstborn from among the dead and we are his offspring. We are born again and accounted righteous. He is numbered with us and now he makes intercession for us. It's a joy that's so deep because it's rooted or it's flowing out of a sorrow that was so deep that God's servant accomplished this for us. That's the joy of Advent, that we are made righteous. You, you have to let the gospel of Jesus Christ dispossess you of any notion that you bring anything of worth to the table. We're going to talk about love next week, and what that means. But the joy we feel, 
the joy we should feel is rooted in the fact that God has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Jesus took on himself the very guilt and wrath that we deserved to make us righteous. And that is the joy of Christmas, is that the servant came. 800 years after this was written. I looked at my kids yesterday and I said, you realize our faith is not a shallow, you know, sort of like a shallow pond. There's a deep, rich history to what we know as the gospel of Jesus Christ because God has only and always been working one plan from the get-go. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And what a joy to rehearse the bad news, but then to let the light of the good news break in over us. Make this strange again. Lord, may we, may we feel the weight that Jesus took on himself. That seems like a strange prayer to pray, but I feel like we've become so familiar, so familiar with all of this, that we don't relish the incredible nature of this gospel. So Lord, today I pray that you would resurrect in us the joy of our salvation, renew us in the joy of our salvation. Lord, thank you for taking our griefs and carrying our sorrows, doing what we could not do for ourselves and making us righteous and pleading our case on the basis of what you've done, not what we've done. So Lord, we worship you today. We exalt you and magnify you in this place for you are worthy to be praised. And I bless your people now. I bless your people to go in a spirit of, of, of worship, in a spirit of joy, realizing that you have come and you have done this for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. We hope you've been blessed by this message from Resurrection Church. Please visit resfaith.com. That's R-E-Z-Faith.com, where you can find more sermon archives, learn more about our church, and find a place to give to our ministry. We'd be glad to hear from you. Drop us an email at connect at resfaith.com.